0: Hello, this is Chris Attic from the law firm of Attic Steel. Welcome to the VA Form 21 podcast. Today we are going to talk about the oral arguments in Simmons v. Wilkie, cause number 16-3039. So this case is a case that's uh, very interesting. Uh, it involves harmless error analysis. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right in. And what we'll do from the beginning is I'm going to give you a general overview of the harmless error law, uh, as well as a little bit of insight and background to that law. I'm going to talk to you about the facts of the BVA decision in this case, the veterans' argument and the secretary's arguments. Then we're going to go into the court's statement of the issues. I'll introduce you to the panel for the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and the voices that you'll hear on this recording, appellants' counsel, the Office of General Counsel Attorney that will be there on argument, and then we will go into the court's recording. So I am not going to read to you the entire court statement of the issue. You can find that in the show notes, uh, either in the show notes here in your podcast app, or you can visit com. Click on over to the VA Form 21 blog and look for the podcast postings, and you will find the entire list of the questions. It's fairly lengthy, um, and most of you, unless you're trying to fall asleep, um, probably would not last through that entire summary. I don't say that to make light of what the court said, only to say that it is a lot of words. So uh, without further ado, let us jump right in and start talking about harmless error law. So, the major question in this case is how the veterans court should apply the harmless error rule when it might involve making findings of fact. The question arises in the context of a Q claim, and we're not going to talk too much about the Q claim. That's complicated enough in its own right. We're going to focus on harmless error. The court stated in its supplemental briefing order that it quote has a statutory duty to consider whether any board error was prejudicial and it cites to its jurisdictional statute 38 USC 7261b2 now from the outset i need to point out to you that that's not entirely accurate 38 USC 7261b2 is much more precise and much narrower it says quote in making the determinations under its jurisdiction and that's a parenthetical there The court shall review the record of proceedings before the board and the secretary and shall take due account of the rule of prejudicial error. Now, the Supreme Court has weighed in on exactly what this meant in the context of VA claims under Title 38. The Supreme Court said in Shinseki v. Sanders in a 2009 case, the site to which you can find in the show notes, Quote, We believe that the statute, in stating that the Veterans Court must take due account of the rule of prejudicial error, requires the Veterans Court to apply the same kind of harmless error rule that courts ordinarily apply in civil cases, The Federal Harmless Error Statute is what is ordinarily applied in civil cases, and that is codified at 28 U.S.C. 2111. The Harmless Error Statute at 28 U.S.C. 2111 directs courts to review cases for errors of law without regard to errors that do not affect the party's substantial rights. That language seeks to prevent appellate courts from becoming what the Supreme Court has called impregnable citadels of technicality, and that's the Kotiakos case, and I am 100% sure that I mispronounced the name of that case. If you know the correct pronunciation, please let me know. Though the body of law surrounding federal harmless error rule is really, in a word, dense and really heavily focused uh, in the context of criminal law, and more specifically in the context of habeas petitions, uh, there's been surprisingly little development of harmless error jurisprudence at the CAVC or in the Federal Circuit as it applies to court opinions. Setting aside that the fact that the burden of proving an error harmless often falls to the party who benefits from the error under the ordinary harmless error rule, and that such burden of proof is often flipped in court application, in veterans court application of the harmless error rule, where the veteran is required to prove that any board error is harmless. Two major questions remain largely unanswered in the CAVC's body of harmless error jurisprudence. The first question is, what rights are substantial in the context of Title 38 such that harmless error analysis cannot apply to a board error? And second, since the Veterans Court is prohibited from making initial findings of fact, except in rare circumstances pursuant to 38 U.S.C. 7261, C. How can the Veterans Court conduct certain harmless error analysis without making factual findings? The court through its supplemental briefing order here in the Simmons case is going to seek to resolve at least the second question. Now I'm going to step aside from the summary of the law and and make an observation. There are many other questions that flow from these two including which record and the scope of the record that the court might review in considering harmless error. Is it the record of proceedings, the record before the agency, or something else? I would also offer for consideration, as you listen to these arguments, the idea that the second question I posed above answers itself. Remember, that second question is, since the court is prohibited from making initial findings of fact, how can it conduct harmless error without making factual findings? I would suggest that if the Veterans Court must make a finding of fact to decide if an error is harmless or not, then there is a reasonably good possibility that the error involves a substantial right to which harmless error may not apply in the first place. The Federal Circuit has resolved a similar question, the same exact question, but in a very different way, however. The Federal Circuit found that where the facts underlying the error are in dispute, we cannot conduct a harmless error analysis without exceeding the bounds of our jurisdiction which precludes fact review. That's the Wood case, v. Peak. It's a 2008 Fed Circuit case, and the site, again, is in the show notes. Where the facts underlying the error are not in dispute, the Federal Circuit has found they are not conducting a factual review, but instead, quote, applying a dispositive legal standard to undisputed facts as essentially a matter of law. So, clear as mud? Let's move into the facts of the BVA decision. September 1974 VA ratings decision found the veteran's mental health condition was not service connected because medical evidence at the time of that decision established his condition was secondary to non-service connected arthritis. The veteran argued the VA failed to properly apply the presumption of soundness and the presumption of service connection for chronic conditions diagnosed in service when it denied service connection for a mental health condition. He argued this because there was evidence in the service treatment records at the time of the 1974 decision that the veteran's mental health condition first appeared in service, which he argues should have triggered an analysis from the VA whether the veteran's in-service mental health condition was, by operation of the presumption of soundness, related to the mental health condition that was diagnosed after military service. The Board found that Mr. Simmons did not establish Q in a September 74 ratings decision denying service connection for that mental health condition. It concluded that there was not cue as to any failure to apply the presumption of soundness because the veteran only claimed direct service connection and even if there was an error in the failure to apply the presumption of soundness the board alleges the outcome would not have been manifestly different because the VA would still have found the veteran's mental health condition secondary to his non-service connected arthritis. At the court, This is the argument that the veteran made. The veteran argues that the BVA clearly erred when it held that it was not a manifestly, that there was not, I'm sorry, a manifestly different outcome. He argues that the presumption of soundness, once it attaches, requires only a showing that the in-service symptoms and condition are the same illness as the current diagnosed illness. He argues that the board found instead that there could not be a manifestly different outcome because there was not evidence that the currently diagnosed mental health condition was causally related to military service. The Secretary's argument was straightforward, and he argued that the veteran did not meet his burden of establishing that the BVA clearly erred, but even if he did, the veteran did not show that error to be harmless, citing to the Waters v. Shinseki case. That cite is a Fed Circuit 2010 case, and you can find the citation in the show notes. So the court's statement of the issue is fairly verbose, and and I want you to go and take a read of it. It's on uh, the show notes. It's also on the blog at addictsteel.com. But the general gist of the questions, and there's five of them, uh, kind of all drives around this theme, is assuming for the sake of argument that the court finds that the board erred in its application or its cue determination regarding the presumption of soundness, that assuming that that error was there, without necessarily finding it, how are they able or should they be able to consider the harmless error rule if doing so required them to make findings of fact? So you are going to hear from a a really good panel here. Uh, The first uh, you'll hear from is Chief Judge Robert N. Davis. Uh, There will be a female judge on the panel, and you'll hear the female voice is Judge Margaret Bartley. And the other judge on the panel is Judge Michael P. Allen. The appellant's counsel is Ken Carpenter. He was on the briefs and at argument, and he's with the firm of Carpenter Chartered. And the VA's office of general counsel attorney that you will hear in the oral arguments is Joshua L. Wolinski, and he was the attorney on the secretary's briefs and at argument. This case arises out of a Winston-Salem, North Carolina regional office decision, and the BVA veterans law judge was Jay Parker. You can find links to the board decision as well as all the opening response reply briefs and the supplemental briefing on the AtticSteel.com website or there in the show notes. So I hope you enjoy the oral arguments. If you have any questions about what you heard, please feel free to shoot me an email at vetlaw at And just a real quick note before we shift over to the court recording the quality of the audio is very different than what you're hearing here um, and you may want to be prepared for either really loud noises or really soft noises depending on what type of device you're listening to either way there will be a dramatic change in the audio and i'll give you a few seconds to get ready for that all
1: right oy-ey, oy-ey, oy-ey. the united states court of appeals
2: for veterans claims now in session General Robert M. Davis presiding
3: Judge Davis, oh, senior judge. I'm not a senior judge. Maybe I, uh, I'm thinking ahead too much here. I am Chief Judge Davis. Uh, to my right is Judge Bartley, and to my left is Judge Allen. Uh, we're here today in the matter of Simmons against Wilkie, docket number 16 3039. We've identified a number of panel issues. And the court uh, issued a supplemental briefing memorandum on January of 2018. Um, And we'll probably like to focus on the questions asked uh, in the supplemental briefing order. But uh, for purposes of summary, let me just uh, indicate uh, what uh, we're looking at at panel issues. What is the limit of the court's ability to make factual determinations in the context of a Thomas error analysis? What is the proper test for determining that an error is prejudicial to an appellant? What does the term child de novo mean in the context of this case? And may the court make findings of fact on matters not addressed by the board in the decision on appeal. Um, The January 2018 supplemental briefing order asks five questions. What is the proper understanding of the scope of section 7261c? which prohibits the court from conducting trial de novo, what is the proper standard for the court to employ in making factual determinations pursuant to the harmless error analysis, what is the proper test for making the ultimate determination whether an error was harmful, four, given that um, Q was adjudicated under the record and the law that existed at the time, Of the prior decision, would the court's prejudicial error analysis differ when assessing the prejudicial effect of a Q decision? And finally, in undertaking a harmless error analysis, are there any limitations to the court's ability to make legal determinations, find facts, and apply the law to facts? Would counsel for both parties please note your appearance for the record? Mr. Carpenter, I am so happy to see you recovered and back. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Mark e. Gore, the secretary of
4: committee
3: council's table is Ken Walsh. Thank you both. Mr. Walsh, thank you for your service on our committee. Are both parties ready to proceed? Uh, each party will have 30 minutes to present your respective arguments. Mr. Carpenter, do you wish to reserve uh, a portion of your time for a bottle? Ten minutes. Please. Ten minutes. You may proceed. You, Mr. Carpenter, appearing on behalf of Mr. Richard, before I begin, Your Honor, I have an intent of sending the author or author of the questions in some briefing order. I believe that there
2: is an obligation on my part to bring. To the court's attention, something that has uh, occurred to me in trying to prepare for this oral argument, and that is this court's decision uh, in Archer v. Principe at 3 Ben F. 433, a 1992 case of this court. Uh, I am not sure, under the holding of Archer, that this court can reach any of the questions. Uh, that uh, have been proposed in a supplemental briefing order specifically the question of whether or not uh, the board correctly determined uh, that the record does not uh, show a manifest or change outcome because to do so would involve this court undertaking a plenary review of the uh, underlying decision uh, particularly in the context of the allegations of clear Error made by Mr. Simmons. Uh, rather, this court's uh, jurisdiction in case of clear and unmistakable error that is decided either uh, in reviewing a board decision or reviewing a regional office decision is to determine only whether that decision was arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with law under Section 7261A3. A. Uh, as I understand, this court's review is limited to an examination of error made by the board and not the ultimate question of whether or not the board correctly determined whether or not the record uh, did or did not show a manifestly uh, different outcome. Uh, as I read the court's questions, uh, all of those questions go to that ultimate question of whether or not. In fact, that, that issue is not before this court. The assignment of error made by Mr. Simmons was twofold: that the board failed to correctly apply 38 U.S.C. 105, small a, or 38 U.S.C. or am 38 U.S.C. section 1111, the presumption of service connection under 105, the presumption of soundness under section
3: 1111. Uh, Mr. Carpenter, in, in assessing whether or not um under the Q analysis error was committed and under the second prong um, whether or not there was a manifested change outcome. Uh, under the proper standard of arbitrary and capricious, don't you think um, part of the uh, assessment of that might raise some of these issues? I, I, I. I do believe that, Your Honor, but I have been rebuffed by this court when attempting to do so with this decision in Archer. Right. Uh, and have been told that this court is not reviewing the underlying decision, particularly those two elements. Mm-hmm. And clearly, uh, at least
1: as the uh, pre-breaking order was framed, the court has asked the parties to assume that there is a violation of 105A that was made by the board. Uh, if that's the case, then to me that is the end of the matter when you do a proper analysis of what the failure to uh,
2: consider a statutory or regulatory presumption is. And that is a prejudicial error because the uh, function of any statutory or regulatory presumption is to fill an evidentiary gap. <laughs> In this case, it is the question of the second uh, or element of the three uh,
5: elements of service connection of incurrence and that was under the proper application of both of these presumptions uh, to presume that there was an incurrence unless that presumption can be rebutted. Well, don't, don't we nevertheless have a statutory duty um, to take account of prejudicial error? You do,
2: Your Honor. But and only are, you pre-
5: are you saying that Archer basically created some kind of exception to that?
2: Um, Not to consideration of prejudicial error. Prejudicial error still has to be considered in relationship to the board's failure to correctly apply Model 5A.
3: That determination is a separate inquiry for harmless error from the one that was proposed in the pre-briefing
2: order one that is proposed in the pre-briefing order is that we examine whether or not the board correctly
1: decided to manifest a different outcome element of the Q analysis. To do that, you violate our
2: truth. Uh, at least in my judgment. Now, if the court uh, if it does not think that is correct, I'm happy to address the issues and allow this court to go forward uh, and, and, and make its decision on that analysis because
5: I think even under that analysis, although I believe it, it, it violates Archer, the board was clearly in error. Uh, number one, they, well, well, I'd like you to go ahead with the analysis. But I did have one before we even get to the the, um, the the briefing order. I I wanted you to, to address um, the fact that several times. In your um, brief you you mentioned, and I think you might have done this in the supplemental briefing as well, um, you mentioned that the June 74 opinion was actually um, contained favorable nexus evidence. Yeah. So can you explain that because I I looked at that opinion and I am not quite getting it.
2: Well, the June 1974 opinion uh, which is uh, in the record at uh,
1: 1448, or no, sorry, it's at 49. I think that's at least the same record we're talking about. It's a record that in the second paragraph says, I have examined the medical records supplied me uh, concerning his illness while in
2: the United States Navy from August 1968 to January 1970. I believe it is a reasonable presumption that the illness manifested as mental depression during that time is the same illness that is now being manifested as arthritis involving multiple joints. Now, in my view, that paragraph is an adequate relationship between what was identified in service under the presumption as a mental disorder and that mental disorder was variously characterized but in the main as depression. Uh, The the, uh, incident, uh, the first incident that precipitated it was an admission to the hospital following an attempted suicide. Clearly we have an event in service that dealt with a mental disorder. We have post-service evidence that this veteran is suffering from
1: a disability. As this court noted in Clemens, there is no obligation on the part of the veteran to know or understand the <coughs> medical uh, uh, nuances
2: of his or her disability. In this case, this doctor is characterizing what happened post-service in the context of what he described as arthritis involving multiple joints. But he clearly states that that is the same illness that was present and identified as depression in service. So the uh, labels, if you
5: will, are not relevant. What is relevant is whether or not there is a post-service disability that is found to be related to an uh, in-service injury or disease or an event. And I believe that this document uh, covers that. And even if this court were not to find that to be true, at the very least, <coughs> it requires a remand for the board to address that. But what what your motion? I'm I'm not sure. If I, I can't recall whether it was your Q motion. I think it was your Q motion that was um, That was as to the denial of service connection for a psych disorder, not not as to the 74. Um, denial of arthritis.
2: I think it's important to go back to uh, uh, the record at 52. On June 11th of 1974, what Mr. Simmons requested was that his claim be reopened for compensation, and these are his words, since there is a reasonable presumption that by rheumatoid arthritis condition was manifested as a direct result of my mental depression in service and culminated in my administrative discharge. That's the issue that was presented, (coughs) a claim made by Mr. Simmons in 1974. The decision made by the VA was to bifurcate that into a rheumatoid arthritis claim and a, a nervous condition claim, both of which were denied. In this case, I believe we have a a medical chicken and the egg situation without being able to identify which came first, the depression or the rheumatoid arthritis. uh, uh, And the VA, in its 1974 decision, made no attempt to look at these as being interrelated other than to say, uh, I believe in the decision uh, that uh, uh, it is not shown that the arthritis was manifested within one year uh, following service to cover the presumptive portion of the arthritis as a chronic disease. The, the point being in this case, though, Your Honor, is, is that the allegation of error made by Mr. Uh, Simmons in both his request for revision and in his uh, uh, briefing to this court was that the VA failed to correctly apply 105A and 1111. It is, in my view, not debatable that that occurred. What, in fact, the board did in its decision was merely to decide that the regulations involving personality disorder somehow trumped those statutory
5: presumptions, and therefore they weren't required to apply them. Right, but, but my question was, your your motion, which I think was filed December two thousand five? Yeah. Uh, was that as to mental alone or was that as to their decision as to our rights?
2: It was purposefully made as to mental alone because there was no evidence of our rights in service or within the presumptive area the uh, uh, diagnosis of uh, arthritis came outside the one-year presumptive period. Uh, in our view, the only um, substantive way that we could seek revision was on the failure of the VA to afford the veteran
1: the benefit of the presumptive service connection for his mental disorder. And had they done that, they would
2: have been required to assume incurrence and then even if you reject the evidence of a post-service diagnosis and uh, uh, nexus uh, the VA would have been under an obligation uh, once correctly applying those presumptions to have uh, developed evidence to determine whether there was or was not a post-service disability and whether that post-service disability was at least as likely as not related to the in-service
6: Yes. Could, could I ask one question which didn't occur to me until you were talking now? But we sort of have to take as a given um, that the arthritis was not uh, service-connected, right? Because that, yes. right, that decision is final, and, and so we take that as, as the world, okay? Um, but yet the, the favorable evidence that you were talking about with Judge Bartley a moment ago seems to be saying that these uh, conditions were secondary to the arthritis. Is there any impact to the fact that we we have to assume that the arthritis itself then wasn't service connect, which means it didn't actually occur in service? And so is that evidence really favorable when it, it has that factual predicate that we have to assume is not true? I believe under this court's analysis in Clemens, This court must do that because it is not incumbent upon the veteran to understand the relationship between what happened to him and even the full nature and scope of
2: what was his resulting disability thereafter. You are correct that technically there was no primary condition in order to be secondarily service-connected. I would suggest that based upon the evidence that was in the record in 1974, that there was more than enough evidence to support the application of both 105A and 1111 to establish the incurrence element. And therefore the focus should have been on the mental disorder. And then the question is, does the record 49? Raise a reasonable possibility that there is one, a post service disability, and two, if there is a post service disability, is it at least as likely as not that that post service disability was related to what happened in service? He framed his, as I indicated, uh, his claim as uh, a reasonable presumption that his rheumatoid arthritis condition. Was manifest as a direct result of his mental uh, depression in service, and culminated in his administrative uh, discharge from service. So, what we're dealing with here is a error of law in a failing to afford that presumption. Once that presumption uh, is established as being applicable, and I believe both presumptions are, then the VA had an affirmative duty to one, a step, uh, recognize that incurrence had been established, and then develop the record accordingly. This decision clearly indicated that no effort whatsoever was made to do that. That they treated them as two separate incidents, even though they acknowledged that there was evidence of some possible secondary correlation between the two. The, this is a defective decision as a matter
1: of law because it began with an error of law by not affording him the presumption
2: of the incurrence element. That is an indisputable fact in this record. That was, therefore, a clear and unmistakable error, and the question then becomes only whether or not that was a manifestly different outcome. And that is an issue
1: for the board to have decided not the way in which the board decided it by posing a hypothetical to say,
6: well, even if there was an error, there would not have been. So that's what I want to ask. Why why isn't that a finding of the board that then we would review in this case? That, right, in, in, in other words, you're, you started out with Archer saying we, we don't get to the prejudicial error in that way. Um, but the board did hear find that it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't have manifestly changed the outcome. And I believe under
2: 7104-D, you can certainly review that as being an inadequate statement of reasons or bases for both of the problems of the even if and the conclusion that there was uh, no manifestly different outcome. So, so. That is a different analysis in my view than what I understood this court
6: wanted us to be discussing. Well, but so, but I think we might be getting there right now, right? <coughs> so, so assume we look at the manifestly different outcome conclusion, and we think, okay, there was a reasons and basis problem. The board didn't explain why it reached that. Let's just assume that. Wouldn't then at that point in time? our obligation to take due account of the rule of prejudicial error, kick in and have us decide. But it doesn't matter because we can we can construct for ourselves why this wasn't manifestly different.
2: I, 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 I think, vis-a-vis that route, you could... What I understood the uh, direction in the supplemental briefing order, however it was, is that we were to assume that there was a violation of 105A, that, to me, is a different proposition, uh, because we were directed to make that assumption and not make the assumption that there was an inadequate statement of reasons or bases about the uh, manifestation of outcomes
3: outcome. Mr. Carpenter, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding where that assumption comes from when you look at the briefing order. Uh,
2: <coughs> the briefing order at page... Or what? Excuse me. in the second paragraph it says assuming without deciding the board erred regarding section 105 but that such an error is non-prejudicial because the board correctly determined that the record does not uh, show a manifestly changed outcome.
3: Right. Without deciding. Assuming yes. without deciding. Well, well, yes. right. I mean, okay. and, and, and
6: clearly I don't think you could have Directed a verdict, as it were. Right. Uh, at least, I, I, that's not. At least, uh, so, uh, so, uh, uh, um, I just want to make sure I I, I understand this because it's a it's a hard it's a hard thing, and I'm I'm gonna I think take you over your time, and hopefully the chief judge will let you go. But um, let's just assume then. Start with the assumption. Okay, the board in the decision that we're reviewing now made a mistake in not concluding that 105A should have been applied in 1974. Okay? Let's assume we look at that, we make that call. We still have an obligation at that point to do something with respect to the rule of prejudicial error, right? Right. Yes, and my assertion
2: is that that goes to the 105 error. And the 105 error is the failure to afford the veteran the benefit of the statutory presumption of service connection, the element of incurrence. And that is where you make your harmless error or prejudicial error analysis uh, as to <coughs> when they failed to apply it, what was the effect of that?
6: The effect of Who's, who's they when they failed to apply it? Is board. it the, the not board. board? Not the agency in the original decision. So, but but in order, and and I'm, I'm not arguing with you. I'm really trying to grasp this. How would we do that to determine that there was error without considering the 1974 decision? That's that's the problem that that I'm I'm having. I
2: believe, your Honor, that your consideration at least as I read Archer is limited to what the board did and how the board did it. Not what the agency did in 1974 and how they did. And in this case, the board said that it was not necessary to consider either of those presumptions because they were trumped by the existence of two regulations that precluded an immature personality disorder which was not claimed from being service-connected. That is an incorrect application of the 105A presumption. The 105A presumption has only one function, one purpose, to substitute the evidence of incurrence and say to the VA, you must presume that this uh, uh, assertion of injury or disease happened while on active duty, that the incurrence element is met, and once that incurrence element is not met, then the continued adjudication of that claim is prejudicially defective because you cannot deny the veteran, as was done here by the board, the benefit of that presumption. They basically said in this case, yes, there's a statutory presumption under 105 and there's a statutory presumption under 1111, but you, Mr. Simmons, you're not entitled to those because those somehow, and it's not explained in the decision, are trumped by the regulations concerning the prohibition of personality disorder from being compensable. But his claim was not for personality disorder. If it was not for personality disorder, then the presumption can only apply to the two claims that the VA actually adjudicated. And the only one that applies to is the nervous condition, the mental condition.
5: But why under I mean, 7261C uh, can't we just go ahead? Okay, yeah, the board did err in some respect as to 105. Um, but we go ahead and follow through the analysis. If they had applied it, um, he wouldn't have won anyway. And I would point to you, you keep saying we have to stop at a certain point, but. I mean, we have a lot of case law. King, Bustos. I think King said it probably most directly that you know a change in the outcome um, uh, means that you would have won instead of lost. And so well, I know I'm a little bit mixing the key, the last, the, the final step of Q with the harmless error analysis, and that raises a good question: like, is there any difference between the two? But also. My, my primary question is under, under the um, taking into account of prejudicial error why can't we do, do that regardless of what error the board made we have the statutory obligation to undertake that analysis
2: please do not understand anything that i'm saying to suggest that you do not have the obligation to take into account error. i believe that there is no question that you must take into account the question is which error and how do you take into account. Under Archer, I believe you're prohibited from getting to that manifest a different outcome piece because it's part of the 1974, uh, or excuse me, it's part of the allegation of Q. The allegation of Q is not before this court. What is before this court is whether or not they did or didn't correctly apply 105 or 1111. 11 those were the two averments of error made by Mr. Simmons, and therefore. And,
5: and can you, whenever you say they, would you, as Judge Allen requested, just I'm clarify sorry. who and you're not you're use?
2: I am <laughs> only referring to the board. <laughs>
6: but 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 how could so? But but the board now, right? So it doesn't apply one hundred and five. Let's just assume it should have applied it, and it didn't. The only way, and I might be just being really slow here, uh, but the only way to figure out whether that is harmful would be, I think, what Judge Bartley is saying. Because otherwise, the, the, the flip is, failure to apply any statutory or regulatory um, provision in a Q analysis would then, by definition, be what Sanders says can't be, right? Presumptively error, right? Meaning harmful, presumptively harmful. So uh, uh, let let me try this again. What, What would we look at? So we write an opinion and we say the board here in the decision on review should have applied 105A, and it did not. Now we will decide whether there is prejudicial error flowing from that. What would we say if we wouldn't talk about the fact... But it wouldn't have made a difference in 1974. Because the
2: answer to the question is not would it have made a difference in 1974, but in terms of prejudicial error, would the error have made a difference in the board's decision? And it would have made a difference in the board's decision, because the board would have,
1: as they did not, have been required to analyze. How 105 and 1111 should have been applied in
2: 1974. To put it another way, George Allen, any time your prejudicial error analysis looks at how there would have been a different outcome in 1974, that exceeds Archer. Your prejudicial error analysis must be: How does the boards error in failing to apply 105 a affect the outcome of the board's decision
5: Yeah, but okay but I so I I'm kind of like I agree with what you just said to some extent but let's say that we find um, let's say we disagree with you that the June 74 opinion is a positive linkage opinion and wouldn't the board's uh, error as to eleven eleven and, and as to one oh five or any error that, that was there. I'm not conceding that there was error there. Any error as to eleven eleven and as to one oh five um would been harmless because you you don't have the the third shed in element or you know the third element of service connection. Well
2: the reason that you wouldn't is because the board didn't if the board had, then you would have some basis to determine that it would have been a harmless error. But in this case, the board applied neither of those two presumptions. Therefore, you do not have the benefit of a board decision which applied those. Uh, it, it, it is, I believe, comparable uh, 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 to this court's inability, I'm like on in the Supreme Court decision's name, uh, that prohibits you from deciding the case on a different ground. Oh, uh, Chenery. Okay, thank you very much. I was completely blind. Uh, it, That, that uh, uh, it is comparable to Chenery because you are making a decision on a different ground. In this case, you're making a decision, uh, excuse me, you're making a harmless error analysis based upon an analysis that never took place an application of both of these that never took place. When a veteran, as here, makes an allegation of Q that two specific statutes were not correctly applied, two two statutory provisions were not afforded to the veteran, the board has an (coughs) obligation to address those.
1: The way in which they were addressed in this case was to say not necessary because these regulations
2: trump that. That is a legal error. That's an error of law. This court's review is only of what the board said. When the board said that, that was wrong, and the failure to afford those presumptions was prejudicial. And you have to look to the absence of any explanation for why they didn't as to whether or not it was prejudicial to say they're not applicable because these regulations regarding personality disorder preclude Consideration of those presumptions—that's just not correct at law. So it needs to go back for the board to do this again based upon the allocation that we made. And I think if you
3: if you do otherwise, if you do as is inferred in, in the briefing order, uh, that you are going to be uh, violating your own precedent. In order. Well, Mr. Carpenter, I'll we'll note your. Uh... Concern for the record, but leave it to the court to decide what it's violating or not. And let's get on with some of the other issues that we've raised in the briefing order, if we could. I think, I've covered everything I n- intended to cover in my <clears throat> opening.
6: Uh, so could I ask one, uh, which is, what is your understanding of the difference, if any? between the manifestly changed outcome prong of the hue and taking due account of prejudicial error.
1: Well, I'm not
2: sure that I'm aware of any cases that make that comparison. I yeah, I don't think there are any. His <laughs> uh, um, sense of it is correct that there is... It's hard to distinguish between the two, Uh, but to me, that only reinforces the need to differentiate between what the board did as
6: an error and what may or may not have been done as a fair and unmistakable error by the agency in 1974. So here's the, take a hypothetical situation, not this decision here, because we will then debate about Uh, whether it did it. Let's assume we have a board decision on a Q motion that has a full-throated, fulsome uh, analysis of the manifestly different outcome, uh, prompt. And a veteran challenges that before the court. So I think we would then review that determination under the arbitrary and capricious standard, right, so, if we found it to be arbitrary and capricious, right, we would then, though, still have to decide whether or not the prejudicial error uh, flowed from that. Um, yes. Yes. A- and so that would allow us then to do a lot more than just looking at whether something is arbitrary. We we'd be able to do something more. Sort
2: of like, Yes. I I, I agree.
6: Yeah, so it's just that's the that's the part I'm wrestling with about about whether then the the two analyses are actually the same or not.
2: Well, but, but the differential is is that as opposed to the presence in the briefing order of a one a violation, your hypothetical shifts to the second prong of the Q analysis, and it presupposes a full. Analysis by the board. None of those things are present in this case. I believe your hypothetical would have to result in a prejudicial error analysis because A, there was an application, and B, there was a full uh, 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 discussion of why they did what they did. And if they If the court then disagrees with that conclusion, or excuse me, agrees with that conclusion and concludes, but there's no error, then I I believe that that's entirely consistent with your obligation to take into account the rule of prejudicial error. But Mr. Simmons and every other veteran who makes a request for revision has a right to have his Q allegation reviewed by the board when it is denied. And in this case, it was denied and it was reviewed by the board. And there was no discussion of 105 and 1111, except to say they are neutralized by the agents. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Stay inside the glass. I mustn't interfere. Thank you, me. thank you all. Very
3: much. Thank you. Uh, Good morning. May I please the court
4: at the outset? I'd like to cover the the very first step of the analysis here, which is of course to determine whether there actually is error
1: in the board's determination, in the board's decision. And it would be a second position that there is no, that there is
4: no error in the board's decision with respect to 105A. The board determined that 105A does not apply, or rather did not apply, in 1974, and that, that determination is correct. In order for 105A to apply, we need to have a disease or injury that occurred during service that 105A would operate to presume is incurred during service. And it's Mr. Simmons' contention based on the April 1969 evaluations, that there is such a disease or injury that occurred during service, namely the notations of acute anxiety disorder or
1: or depression reaction.
4: However, he omits that later that same year, in December 1969, there was an additional evaluation by a service department examiner, which found those exact same symptoms, to be an immature personality, a personality disorder. And that is not a disease or injury by regulation. And it's clear in looking at the RO's nineteen seventy-four decision that the RO actually credited that latter finding. It found that there that there was a that there was no disease or injury incurred during service. And absent a disease or injury in service, 105A has no application.
6: Let me ask you one quick question about that. Um, so when I was thinking about this, uh, you know, depending on how you looked at it, it, it sort of looks different. It's a, you know you, different perspective, but um, the way you just frame that is one of the ways to look at this, which is the that the the agency in the in that earlier decision made a factual determination about something. Like they made a factual determination. Um, Which might have been right, or it might have been wrong, but it was a factual determination. And how does that play into this? Because it seems to me that there's at least some law out there that we couldn't review, or nobody could review, on a Q motion the balancing of whether the fact was determined correctly. Yes, sir. Uh, There are kind of two prongs to (coughs) one of your latter
1: statements there, and I would agree with them both. We're we're at Q. The
4: board's analysis here was whether or not it was clear and unstable error in the R.O. decision. So, to the extent the RO made a factual finding, and to these, there is evidence to support that finding, the board can't look beyond that. The board can't re weigh the evidence at Q. And in looking at the record, there is indeed evidence to support the RO's determination that there was no disease or injury incurred during service, insofar as there is an in service evaluation stating that these symptoms, these reactions, whatever they were,
0: were a personality disorder,
4: so insofar as there is evidence to support the RF determination, once that decision becomes final and becomes subject to the Q standard, no one can second-guess that. It simply can't be reopened and way.
6: Is there a, would there be any problem, let's just assume that we agree with you the whole way, uh, would there be any problem with using that as a basis for a decision uh, here? when the board didn't actually advance that itself as a reason? In other words, the board didn't say, there can't be Q here because this is based on a factual determination, a factual call made in 1974, um, and therefore because that can't serve as the basis of Q, given that there's some evidence in the record to support that factual, blah, blah, blah. I mean, would, would, would we still be able to get there if we wanted to? You would, Your Honor. I guess, first, I, I, would, I would submit that the board actually
4: did get there to the extent that they said that 105A does not apply, but to operate in the world of... That was very <laughs> persuasive. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, operate in the world of your, of your hypothetical, could the court get to kind of the, the, uh, the framework that I earlier, and yes, you certainly could. Again, the board's analysis here, the board's focus is whether or not there was a clear and undebatable error, and as a second problem, whether that error manifestly changed the outcome. And under under the standard for looking at prejudicial error that the court announced in May, it's always appropriate to look at the outcome of the board's determination
1: in looking to whether there was prejudicial error. If that outcome was correct, notwithstanding any error the Board may have made, then that will always be harmless
4: error. And the outcome of the Board's determination here is, was there or was there not a And that, And baked into that question is whether the, the outcome in 1974 was manifestly changed. So once there is a determination of error, whatever it may be, the Court can then look to the board's decision and say, had the board not made that error, would the board have concluded that the 1974 decision manifested would have been different? And the answer to that is no here. And the board explained that, well, I've given you one reason based on the record that I think is clearly supported by the board's decision, and the board gave you a second reason, that regardless of how 105A may operate here, whatever may have been incurred during service, there still is no nexus, or I should, I should say there is still unfavorable evidence with respect to the elements of nexus. There is, of course, at best there conflict mm-hmm. on that point. There's a record at, one, at page 49 that Mr. Simmons points to as favorable evidence, and my reading of that is that it's actually unfavorable evidence, but even assuming that it's favorable, there nonetheless remains the August 1970s August 1974 the psychiatric examination, which is unequivocally negative evidence insofar as it says the psychiatric disability, the anxiety reaction, depressive features, is related to the rheumatoid arthritis, which is a non-service connected disability. That service connection for that disability was denied in that very same decision. That's not that's not challenged here. That was and is a non-service connected disability. And there simply is no basis for granting service-connected disability benefits based on relation to a non service connected disability. So the mere mere presence of, at most, at best, conflict in the record would preclude a finding that the board, would preclude a finding by the board that the 1974 decision would have been manifestly different because the board and the board indeed, no one can simply re-weigh the facts, as the board of 1974, because of the nature of the Q analysis. That
6: your question. Yeah, it, it does. How do you how do you understand the just conceptually any any room between manifestly different the that analysis and the analysis of taking to account of prejudicial error? Do you do you see them being the same thing or, or different? It, in most
4: cases, indeed, in, in, in I would suggest almost all cases where this court is making by like this, the two the two analyses really collapse. This, where you're looking at the outcome of the board's decision, you're necessarily looking to how the board would have looked at the earlier decision, and that really imports the Q standard. But it really harkens back to the standard for prejudicial error, which the court again announced in, in Mayfield and again in Vogan, where you really are looking to the interest that's affected by the error. And typically at Q, what we're talking about is something like Mr. Simmons alleges here, where the board misapprehended some law or overlooked some fact. And that is an error that just necessarily is going to go to the outcome. You, you can look to the outcome, I and mean, you can always look to the outcome in the field, voting standard. If that outcome is unchanged, that is not prejudicial. But there are other types of errors that the board could have could have, uh, could have committed. Um, the only one that I've been able to envision that was Really, cause any daylight between the two standards is is something that happened in the board's proceedings. Say, for example, Federer asked for a copy of his claims file to better flesh out his arguments with respect to Q, and he was never provided with the claims file. That is something where you wouldn't wouldn't look to the the changed outcome in that respect because the interest isn't with respect to the outcome, the interest is with respect to participation in the current proceedings. So the, the, the prejudice is different, so you wouldn't need to get to that. Uh, but apart from that example, really, um, like I said, typically all all the cases will look to the outcome. And I think mean, you can't always look to the outcome, but if you did it, it again depends on the error and whether that is an error or, or, or the interest really goes to the outcome.
3: Mr. Gore, on page 9 of your um, response to the supplemental briefing order, you, you kind of uh, distinguish the um, harmless error test, at least in your construct, from the um, standard under Q, under request for revisions on manifestly changing an outcome. And I thought uh, that it made sense um, because your point was that the harmless error test should require the to show that an error affected the essential fairness of the adjudication. And then you went on in the next uh, paragraph at the bottom of page 9 to say once the error of fact or law is found, the question isn't really what's harmless or whether or not it's harmless, I'm sorry, but whether or not correcting that error would change the outcome. And that seems to me to actually present some daylight between the harmless and error analysis and the manifestly changed outcome analysis.
4: I, I, I would tend to agree, Your Honor. Um, really I, I think there are two sides of the same coin. In the in looking to the essential fairness, as the court explained, in Mayfield, what you're what you're getting at there is, is the interest. Whether whatever error was made, or whatever obligation the, the board failed to meet, looking at the interest and and, and what, what interest that obligation seems to serves to protect and whether the board's error undermine whether the board's error with respect to that interest undermines the essential fairness of the proceedings and that uh, that fairness really like I mentioned a the ago really depends on the type of error and um, usually
1: with um, Q that will be looking at the outcome and and, and again under the maintenance standard you can always look to the outcome
4: if, if, if we can be certain that the outcome did not change then, of course, there's no impact on the fairness of the proceeding because mm-hmm. if, 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 regardless, the claim would have been denied, there's no unfairness in denying a non-meritorious claim, regardless of whatever errors may have been going play.
5: Now, Sam, uh, Sanders uh, laid out these factors that should inform a error analysis, and uh, they spoke of, well, the first one is very familiar to us, an estimation of the likelihood that the result would have been different. Um, but there's also, they also laid out some other factors. An awareness of what body has the authority to reach that result, a consideration of the error's likely effects on perceived fairness, integrity, or public reputation of, of judicial proceedings, um, hesitancy to generalize too broadly about particular kinds of errors when the specific fact, um, fact, factual circumstances in which the error arises um, might make a difference. Now, so um, I'd say generally this court looks at the first of those, you know, with the outcome. You know. But um, what are your thoughts on how those other factors? Could play into
4: our harmless error determination. In this case, and also generally, I'm curious. Generally, again, just uh, I'm sorry, I, I sound like a bit of broken record here, but again, it really all harkens back to the Mayfield standard, and uh, as, as and it really looks to what kind of error occurred and what interests that error affects. Um, naturally, if, if we're talking about something like a notice error that, that occurred at the outset with, with a, a claimant not receiving notice of the types of evidence that could be submitted to support the claim or the to receive notice that he could or she could participate in the hearing. Naturally, you're, you're not going to look at the outcome so much as you're going to look at a different interest, which is the, the interest to fully and fairly participate in the proceedings. And to, to simply say that well, on this evidence, the outcome would have been the same, doesn't make a lot of sense in that kind of situation, because the error affected body of evidence that you need to be looking at. The error really precedes all of that, and that speaks to one of the factors, you noted, know, Your Honor, that namely the, the perception of fairness and integrity in the process, it's, it's difficult to, to say good enough where a person wasn't even allowed to participate in proceedings. And, and that all flows from recognition of what kind of error is we're talking about and what interest that error affects. I think that's really what the Supreme Court was getting at is that we don't want to make presumptions hard and fast rules when we're, when we're talking about harmless error, prejudicial error. And, and that's an obligation <coughs> the court made so as far back as 1946 in Sonyakos, noting that this type of analysis just does not lend itself to right-line rules. It's a very highly case-specific determination where you just have to understand what error was made and what interest that error
6: so, but to follow I'm on to Judge Barbie's questions about Sanders, just one thing, which is, I and I appreciate your distinction between, say, a notice error and I'm going to call it a substantive error. I mean, a, you know, the the Q error, right? Um, but the first element or the first factor that Sanders talks about essentially is would the outcome have been different, right? So, if we're in that sort of center of what the Q is. So the error that we're we're talking about that we might find is not a notice error. It's really about the substance of Q. Would we ever, in a prejudicial uh, error analysis, reach any other factor from Sanders, given the fact that the entire thing with Q is it has to have manifestly changed the outcome? Do you see what I'm saying? I do. And and again,
4: typically, you wouldn't. And and indeed, um, again, you can always look to the outcome. The court made that clear in Mayfield. If we have certainty that the outcome would not have changed, that is always harmless, regardless of what type of error we're talking about, whether it's it's notice, uh, duty to assist, reasons and basis, anything. If, If we still have the certainty that the outcome was the same, then that is harmless. Some errors it's difficult to reach that level of certainty, but as you know, with Q where, where the the definition of the error itself really goes to the outcome, almost always that, that is going to be the focus of the of the prejudicial error analysis. And just due to the certainty that's required by Q, it's it's I hesitate to
1: say easy, but it's, it's, much, it's more, much more common to find harmless error because of cases like these,
4: where something as, as, as minor as mere conflict in the record necessarily means that it is not outcome-determinative. Where there's any doubt in the record, then there's no doubt as to cue on collateral attack at the earlier decision.
3: Mr. Gore, given the uh, discussion that we're having and the um, questions and the supplemental briefing order, is there guidance that this court can offer in a precedential opinion uh, in this area? Uh, I think um,
4: well, yeah, the, the court has answered most of the questions, I think, already, um, whether it may be Neal, <coughs> or Golderson. Most of those questions are already subject to presidential decisions about this court or the federal circuit. Uh, to the extent the court uh, finds some lack of clarity in that existing precedent, uh, of course, the court could always offers, uh, offer some additional synthesis of the various presidential, um, presidential decisions, regulations, and law. Um, I think, so I guess the answer would be yes. Um, I certainly don't want to uh, tell them the whole what sort of guidance is necessary, but that's certainly. Helpful
5: to uh, anybody against the view and to understand exactly the nature of what the court's inquiry will be. To your knowledge, there's no case that talks about this um, uh, whether there's space between these two, to what extent there's space between these two. You know, the the last poem of Q manifests a different outcome and prejudicial error.
4: Well, I'm not aware of cases specifically hitting that precise point. Uh, I think the cases do certainly provide the answer to that, but I I don't think that it's been explicitly spelled out uh, to answer your question. Um, I guess the answer might be circling around it somewhat. But I I think the answers certainly are out there in presidential decisions, but not precisely on on the question you asked.
6: Because this, uh, it strikes me that, and I haven't gone back and reread, Archer. I may never have read Archer. But um, taking Mr. Carpenter's point, uh, if that stood for the proposition that generally the court doesn't look through the board decision to look at the earlier agency decision in a Q context, it does strike me, thinking out loud here, that if there isn't, in most cases, a difference between manifestly changed outcome and prejudicial analysis uh, error analysis. It does strike me that, that it may be that Archer's statement, let's just take it as true, that we don't look through the one decision to reach the other, isn't necessarily true once we get to the harmless error analysis, because if the harmless error analysis embodies manifestly changed outcome, that looks at the earlier decision. It has to, by definition, right? So I think I think the cases might not be quite as clear, necessarily, in spelling that out.
4: Well, well again, Your Honor, it's, it's, it's really in the nature of the Q analysis that once you reach the prejudicial error prong of that, then they, they collapse to some extent, but, but at the same time, they don't. The court isn't <coughs> reviewing the earlier decision Or whether it contained Q. It's looking at whether the board could have found Q in that. And it's a fine distinction, but I think a critical one. Um, So I don't see, I I guess I wouldn't say that Archer has lost its salience in in any any sense so much as it's just important to to keep in mind which decision one's actually talking about when you reach the the prejudicial errors. If, uh, if, did that make sense your Honor?
6: Well, it, it did. I'm, I'm finding this to be a little bit, um, uh, and this is not a problem with you or Mr. Carpenter, but this is, uh, it's, it's a hard distinction to keep in mind once you decide that in a in a Q context, if I were a board member, I would, if I were a veterans law judge, I would be looking at the manifestly changed outcome and the place I would be looking would be in, in, our, in our case here, I would be looking back to 1974. And if in fact on a prejudicial analysis now that I'm on this court, uh, I can't look to the 1974 decision. I have to look at what this board would have done had it considered manifestly changed outcome. But of course that takes you back to 1974. So I I understand perfectly your theoretical distinction between that (laughs) and I think it's, it's right uh, it's difficult to think how in, how in practicality that, you know, you, you, you keep your boxes uh, mm-hmm. separate.
4: The lines certainly do blur, and that really is, again, a product of what Q is, because typically the, the, the board the board's decisions are, are typically de novo in nature. They're deciding the claim anew without reference to any other decision. Q is unique in that regard in that the board really is acting, I mean, that's, that's not technically accurate, but it's acting on and more as an appellate its re- it, it Its decision is bound by a highly deferential <clears throat> standard of review, which, which is regular. And that they're typically deciding anew, but when, when they are operating under a deferential standard of review, and then this court's review of that review is also deferential, the lines certainly At this point, it's
5: uh, there. Well, I, I, I wanted you to address one other thing. Okay. You you argued in the supplemental um, briefing that the court is limited uh, in the harmless error analysis to the record before the agency at the time of the decision that's being um, challenged for Q. Um But we do have you know language in Bogan and other cases that talks about looking at the prior record. Can you just address? you know, how you came down on that and what were your your considerations?
4: Certainly, again, it harkens back to, to what we're talking about with an outcome in Q. If if we're looking at, at the, the outcome of the board's decision, which was whether there was Q in the earlier decision, the board can only find Q in the earlier decision based on the record as it was in this case in 1974. So even in a harmless error context, we couldn't find that the that there was error in 1974 based on evidence from, say, 1980, it's just in the nature of the inquiry that uh, you would need to focus on the facts as they were in the decision that is the focus of the inquiry. But again, uh, to borrow from the example I made earlier, if the error you found was something was something else, say the, uh, the failure to provide a copy of the claims file that I mentioned, then of course you would be looking at more recent evidence in your... In your harmless error analysis, you'd be looking at evidence bearing on whether the claimant actually received this claim as or whether, not standing the lack of receipt of the claim as well, he was going to craft his arguments. So, so again, it all goes from the nature of the error. But again, typically, it's where you're looking at the outcome, then you're looking at the evidence that's relevant to the outcome. And in Q, that is the evidence as it was here in 1974. Does that answer your question, Your Honor?
5: Yes, but when you gave the example of the, the copy of the claims file, you weren't talking about that as a queue as a basis for Q. You're talking about a non-Q claim I'm talking about if the claims file is not provided, say say in this case, Mr. Simmons submitted his motion for Q and Radiancy if that passed for a copy of the And that was the problem. The board error is in these Q as opposed
4: than previously, but the evidence bearing on the prejudice of the current error would be more evidence as opposed to evidence before the matter If that makes sense. If there are no further questions, Your it would be that, again, the Secretary's contention that, that the board actually made no error here with respect to 105A, and to the extent it may have, before board clearly explained by virtue of its reference to the unfavorable nexus evidence then the such error would be, would be not prejudicial. Thank
3: you. Okay. In its uh, argument, I'm describing what the board did
2: in this case in relationship to the relationship between the diagnosis uh, of a mental disorder and folding uh, in the therapy a therapy disorder based upon later diagnosis. Uh, and I concur that's what the board did. However, I think it's important for this court to examine, notwithstanding uh, how the board characterized it, what the agency actually did in 1974. Uh, at page uh, 1448 of the record, uh, the second page of the 1974 rating decision under the letter D, which specifically stands for decision, the second full sentence says the currently diagnosed anxiety reaction. Is not seen to be related to the immature personality shown
3: before which he was separated from SBC. Now it seems to me there that that is uh,
2: a clear A acceptance of a uh, current diagnosis in 1974 of a post service mental disorder. Second, It is an acknowledgment that there is no relationship between what was separately diagnosed in service in three different service records as a mental disorder that was predicated initially upon a suicide attempt as somehow being the same as a personality disorder, or in this case what was characterized as an immature disorder. A diagnosis of a personality disorder has nothing to do with suicidal ideation or suicidal attempts. We are dealing here with the identification of a mental disorder while on active duty that flows from a suicide attempt. That fact triggered the presumption under 105 as well as the presumption under 1111. The government also talks in terms of the uh, analysis, whether it is uh, under the uh, umbrella of uh, manifesto different outcome or under the umbrella of prejudicial error analysis, uh, should focus upon the essential fairness. And that seems to me to be the point of this argument and the urging of Mr. Simmons for this panel not to go down the road of a
1: prejudicial error analysis that will undermine the importance and value of
2: statutory and regulatory presumption because if this court were based upon what the board did to make a determination that there was an analysis of the value of the presumption under both of these statutory presumptions and that the court finds that these presumptions were not correctly applied. It undermines for every veteran seeking revision and every advocate trying to frame a request for revision to frame a uh, uh, request that is going to be successful in putting through the needle the camel. Because if the camel in the manifestly different outcome is so large that you cannot overcome it because the court is going to step in and make the review that the board should have done. That seems to undermine the value of the presumption. If this court makes a finding that the 105A presumption was not correctly applied, there is no way that this court can make a non-prejudicial finding based upon what's in the board's decision because all that was said was the mere declaration that it wouldn't have changed the outcome. That should not be an adequate statement of reasons or bases for this court to find that they can do a non-prejudicial error analysis. And this court should recognize this Judge Davis suggested to the government, is there some guidance that this court can offer? I believe that the guidance that this court can offer is to define with specificity what the effect is of a statutory or regulatory presumption. So that the government as well as the parties will know what you get when you are entitled to that presumption and more importantly, in this case, what you did not get. And the effect of what Mr. Simmons did not get was the opportunity for his case to be considered with the benefit of the presumption that his mental disorder was incurred in service. He didn't get that in the 1974 adjudication. That adjudication was flawed. At the very least, This court needs to send this matter back to the uh, board for re-adjudication of the request for revision with directions to consider the effects of both of those presumptions, which the government conceives were not considered by the agency.
6: Would there be any problem in taking this route with Sanders itself in the sense that it seems like the Supreme Court was pretty clear about not adopting hard and fast rules, and wouldn't this be equivalent to saying that in a case in which we're talking about a, uh, a statutory or regulatory presumption, that we will, it, it would be equivalent to us presuming prejudice in those situations automatically? You're, I'm going to make sure i understand
2: what you're asking are you asking me? Would that
6: be the end result? Well, yeah, I think I think step one would. It, it sounds like that's basically what the uh, the argument you're making is um, that when there is a presumption, so here presumption of in in the line of duty, and <clears throat> the board in a queue context errs by not affording that presumption. Yeah. I think the rule you're saying is that is inherently prejudicial. I'm saying that yes. Well, no, and I'm not. I, I'm not taking a position on that one way or the other. And I don't mean to equivocate,
2: but, but I want to clarify that that what makes it um, inherent is what the role is, both historically and as accepted in the case law of this court and the federal circuit of statutory and regulatory presumptions. They are a substitute for evidence. It relieves the veteran of the burden of coming forward with evidence to prove a matter at issue. Essentially, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater here because the presumption was not applied. The failure to apply statutory presumptions should be viewed by this court as comparable to the void ab initio analysis that this court has made in reduction cases. This court has said the protective regulations that are required by the agency, pre-reduction, if they are not applied, any decision that reduces is void as a matter of law. Well clearly, when a presumption is afforded by Congress, or when the VA itself creates a regulatory presumption, then those presumptions have to be afforded for there to be the essential fairness of an adjudication. And when the board simply declares that a presumption does not apply, and in so saying is wrong as a matter of law, because what they said was it didn't apply because there was a personality disorder noted in the medical record. There is no case law that supports that proposition. A personality disorder is non-compensable. The fact that out of four examinations, one of the four said that it was a personality disorder, okay, he's not entitled to compensation for the personality disorder. But that in no way bars or otherwise precludes consideration for the mental disorder that was noted in the three other service medic- I,
5: I, I, yeah, can you just address this? I'm wondering how far you are going with your analysis similar to Jodana. Um, let's say you had a pension applicant and uh, you know that a few years ago there was a rule put into place, probably more than a few years ago <laughs> that was essentially a presumption that said that um, if you're 65 or older you meet the permanent and total um, requirement Let's assume that the board did not apply that rule, and um, they found that he wasn't permanent and total, and he appealed. Um, But um, it's clear, also from the record, something that the board didn't mention, that uh, he didn't have wartime service. Would you expect us to send that back down for the board to <clears throat> correct its error as the permanent total, even though we know we could find that that error was harmless because he didn't have wartime service?
3: The council, the time's expired. Would you please answer uh, Judge Bartlett's question? Uh, I, I, I do not believe that, that I would have that expectation on this court because I think that falls into the category of cases in which. The law does not support
2: the award. You cannot make that conclusion in this case because the statutory presumption was not afforded. This court does not know what would have happened in 1974 had that presumption been afforded. In your pension analysis, you clearly know that because the veteran lacked
5: wartime service, that he is, as a matter of law, precluded. I don't remember the case. The name, so, but the, okay, so you're, everything is hinging on our agreement with you that the uh, the June seventy four opinion that was oh no was oh no, satisfied nexus requirement essentially
2: no no your honor uh, it, 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 it is not that 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 goes to, to why I think it is arguable
1: that there was a manifestly different outcome. I am saying that when you are judging the question of
2: a failure to consider a statutory or regulatory presumption that this court should adopt the rule as was articulated by Judge Allen, that it is inherently prejudicial because the statute, because Congress
5: mandated
2: that that presumption be applied. And
5: yeah, well, that's why I was trying involved. to come up with the pension, which is essentially, to me, a, a presumption that you're permanent and total.
2: Well, I, with respect um, to and I think the problem with your analogy is that it's binary, because it's either or. You are either entitled to the pension or you're not entitled to the pension. And by having no wartime service, you're not entitled as a matter of law, whether you qualify by age or not. So the, the, the difficulty in that analogy, and that's why I want to make sure that that you do not understand my argument to be dependent upon 49, uh, uh, RBA page 49. It is dependent upon the nature of statutory and regulatory presumptions, that they have a um, uh, um, a substance at law that cannot be allowed to be ignored by an adjudicator in a non-adversarial uh, system. When Congress or the <coughs> mandates that a presumption be afforded,
3: the presumption
6: needs to be afforded. Yeah, that's one. Absolutely. It, so it sounds a bit like um, in 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 the world of uh, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel or constitutional claims. Most claims are subject to purely harmless error review. Um, but there are some errors that are deemed to be structural errors. That's what the constitutional phrase is. So, for example, the complete abandonment by counsel. In our, uh, are you, I know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, are you basically saying that in the world in which everything is subject to harmless error here? there are some things that are like structural error in the constitutional context and this is one of them. Is that, would that be a fair characterization? Yes,
2: and that's why I made the analogy to this court's going to an issue uh, of analysis in uh, uh, um, reduction cases. That yes, there are some instances and I believe that statutory regulatory presumptions are such an instance that are so structurally uh, uh, substantive to this non adversarial system that the leg up is that presumption and the failure to consider and apply that has to be regarded uh, as something that that is uh, not presumptively but inherently accreditation
3: thank you sir. thank you counsel the case is submitted for consideration the court will now come down and greet counsel